Dear listeners, welcome to the joint podcast hosted by Gold Solicitors in Hong Kong and Economic Laws Practice in India. I'm Kajal Aswani, partner at Gaul, and will be moderating the session today. Gaul and ELP have had the opportunity to collaborate on several initiatives during the lockdown, and we are delighted to host this first ever podcast with them. We have been internally discussing some interesting issues on the dispute resolution space, both in India and in Hong Kong. While we at Gaul have been getting quite a few inquiries on recovery of funds in case of a wire fraud, ELP was keen to cover the issue of summary judgments in India. Our podcast, therefore, will cover both these issues. Though we realize both are diverse in concept, we thought it might provide for some interesting takeaways for our listeners. With this, I'd like to introduce to our speakers, Ashima Sood, who is a senior associate in dispute resolution at Gaul, and Salesh Poria, a partner in the dispute practice at ELP. Let's start with you first, Ashima. In this section of the podcast, we'll be looking at the process of recovery of funds in case of a wire fraud where the funds have been diverted to Hong Kong. There has been a dramatic increase in wire fraud globally, and Hong Kong is no exception. We receive a lot of inquiries from victims in foreign jurisdictions, including India, looking to recover funds lost in wire fraud. Ashama would explain the process of recovery under Hong Kong law and also share some tips and best practices on how to prevent wire fraud. Hi, everyone. Um, unfortunately, it's a new age of crimes where criminals have transcended to our computers and telephones. The most common types of scams uh, that we encounter in our practice are email scams, online investment frauds, and romance scams. And not to bore you with stats here, but over 8 billion Hong Kong dollars from scam victims was laundered through Hong Kong bank accounts in 2020. And the police only managed to intercept around $3 billion. So that's a lot of hard-earned money lost to scams. Uh, so what should someone do if they suspect that they have become a victim of wire fraud? Well, once the funds have been transferred to the fraudsters' bank accounts, uh, the fraudsters will try to dissipate the funds as quickly as possible. There are three important steps the victims must take immediately upon discovering the fraud when the funds have been diverted to Hong Kong. First and foremost, uh, you should contact your bank to cancel the wire transfer and request them to notify the recipient bank immediately to call the remittance. It's all about speed. If you can act quickly, the banks may be able to reverse the remittance. Secondly, you should report the matter to the local police and to the Hong Kong police. A police report to the Hong Kong police can be made online on their website. And the process is quite straightforward. And if the report is made in a timely manner, there is a possibility uh, that the fraudster's bank account can be frozen by the police. The next and most important step is to engage solicitors in Hong Kong to assist you with the process of recovery. Our clients um, regularly ask us whether the police will help them in recovering the funds, and the short answer is no. It is simply necessary to commence civil proceedings and to obtain a court order for recovery. Ashima, can you briefly explain the process and the timeline for civil proceedings? Well, the the proceedings are commenced by issuing a writ of summons, setting out the basis of the claim and the relief sought and serving it on the fraudster, that is the Hong Kong account holder. The defendant has a short period of time to indicate whether it intends to contest the proceedings. 
Um, fraudsters often remain silent, which enables the victim to apply for a default judgment. Upon obtaining default judgment, garnishing proceedings can be commenced to enforce the judgment against the funds in the bank account. The bank normally does not contest these proceedings, and once the order is obtained, the bank is able to release the funds to the victim's designated bank account. Uh, if the proceedings are uncontested, the recovery process takes approximately six to eight months in straightforward cases subject to the court's capacity. Uh, where substantial funds are involved, it is also advisable to seek an injunctive relief over the Hong Kong bank account. An injunction application is uh, costly to obtain but offers additional protection as the police can withdraw their administrative freeze at any time. Uh, victims of cryptocurrency fraud can also apply for injunctive relief in Hong Kong, uh, particularly if they are able to trace the transaction to a cryptocurrency exchange uh, in Hong Kong. Well, that's all very helpful, but what happens in a scenario where the victims do not know the identity of the wrongdoer, but only have the relevant information such as the account number, uh, or if victims are want to obtain details of the status of the funds before they decide to proceed with the civil proceedings? Uh, well, ancillary disclosure orders can be sought against the bank as part of the injunction application. Otherwise, a Norwich Pharmacal application can be made against a bank to request such details without commencing any proceedings against the account holder. Generally, a gagging order is also sought against the relevant bank at the outset so that the bank is prohibited from notifying the account holder about the intended proceedings. Uh, in case of ongoing civil proceedings, an application can be made under Section 21 of the Evidence Ordinance against a bank to obtain the relevant bank records. Uh, fraudsters are often smart, uh, we won't deny that, and are quick to dissipate the funds in smaller tranches into multiple bank accounts. Although the police carry out their investigations quite diligently, uh, given their limitations arising out of confidentiality concerns, sometimes it is worth obtaining the bank documentation independently from the banks, uh, especially where substantial sums are involved, so that any recovery actions can be taken promptly. Um, what happens if the recipient of funds come forward and challenges the claim? Uh, that's always possible. Uh, the recipient may have been innocently caught up in the fraud or they may seek to argue that they have already remitted out the monies while acting in good faith and without notice of the victim's interests. Depending on the merits of the case, victims can seek to settle with the defendant in such cases. Uh, important thing to bear in mind for overseas victims is that Hong Kong courts have the power to order a foreign plaintiff to deposit security for the defendant's costs of defending the action in certain circumstances. So if the defendant seeks to defend the proceedings and applies for security for costs, it can have a significant impact on the legal fees for the victims. So continuing the action in these circumstances then can be very expensive and sometimes even disproportionate to the amount of the claim involved. Uh, if the defendant, however, puts forward a shadowy defense, the victim can consider applying for a summary judgment, which can be obtained at an early stage in the proceedings without a full trial and can help minimize the time and costs of pursuing the recovery. Uh, historically, summary judgment was not available in cases involving an allegation of fraud, but recent amendments to the High Court rules have removed the fraud exception. Well, that's a positive development. Uh, so just that I understand correctly and to summarize, so upon discovery of the fraud, victims must, uh, number one, inform the banks, number two, file a police report, and number three, quickly instruct solicitors to take care of the court process? 
Yes, that's correct. And if the victims act fast and if they're fortunate, there will still be some monies left to recover. In most cases, the civil proceedings would go uncontested and the process of recovery can be quite straightforward. The solicitors can help liaise with the bank and the police uh, for the effective return of the funds. Great. Ashima, can you now just share some practical tips to prevent wire fraud before we conclude your session? Sure. Uh, it's always sad to see clients lose money to frauds, but I guess it's worse when you realize that it could have been prevented if best practices had been followed by the companies or individuals. Um, my top tips to prevent wire frauds <clears throat> would be to conduct regular training sessions on scams and best practices. Never rely on a single source of instruction um, for payment requests. Double check email addresses and always verify <clears throat> instructions by phone. Uh, and finally, research before investing. Verify the licenses and beware of promises of high rates of return. If the deal seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Well, thanks. That was very useful, Ashma. Now, moving on to our next topic for today, summary judgments in India. I'm aware that the Indian government has introduced various solutions to fast track the justice delivery system in India, like alternate dispute resolution mechanisms, mediation, Lok Adalats, and so on. Provisions regarding summary judgment in the Civil Code of Procedure provide one such means to achieve a quick resolution of a dispute. We have Selesh from ELP with us today who will shed some light on what these provisions are. Selesh, over to you. Thank you, Kajal and Ashima, for providing this uh, wonderful uh, description on wire fraud and recovery. Yes, so moving on to summary judgment. Summary judgment, as the name suggests, is a process whereby a commercial case is decided summarily, of course, in accordance with the procedure laid down in the Code of Civil Procedure. The decision is based solely on documentary evidence tendered to the court by parties without going through the rigmarole of recording oral evidence, which itself is a time-consuming process. While the provision of summary judgment is not a substitute for a regular trial, it is a tool that allows courts to dispose of cases that do not need an elongated trial to be resolved. A typical civil proceeding in India could take years to be decided. But by way of a summary procedure, the case could be decided much quicker. Detailed provisions have been set out in the Civil Procedure Code with respect to documentary proof, which is required to be submitted, contents of a plaint, procedure timelines, and provisions for leave to defend. Well, thanks, Salesh. Now, diving deep into the core provisions, could you please tell us more about the grounds available for seeking summary judgment? Sure. The unique part is that summary judgment provisions can be invoked by either of the parties to the litigation. It is not limited to the claim of the plaintiff, rather it is extended to the counterclaim filed by the defendant as well. So application by a party for summary judgment is filed not merely for deciding a claim or counterclaim, but also to seek answer of any particular question on which the claim depends. An application can be made by either party post issuance of summons, but before framing of issues. The criteria to meet before a summary judgment is granted are that, firstly, material facts need to be clear and undisputed. 
and the entitlement of the judgment by the applicant must be as a matter of right. Disputed facts depict a genuine issue. So usually a party opposing summary judgment introduces evidence contradicting the applicant's version of facts. However, the facts in dispute must be central to the case. If irrelevant or minor factual disputes will not defeat a motion for summary judgment. The provisions related to summary judgment which enable the courts to decide claims pertaining to commercial disputes without recording oral evidence are exceptional in nature and out of the ordinary course which a normal suit has to follow. Therefore, it is essential that the stipulations are followed scrupulously, otherwise it may result in gross injustice. The procedure for applying for a summary judgment inter alia requires the applicant to state the reason why there are no real prospects of succeeding on the claim or defending the claim and requires notice of the said application to be given to the opposite party of at least 30 days. The reply to such application ought to be precisely identify the points of law, if any, and the reasons why the relief of summary judgment should not be granted and why there are real prospects of succeeding on the claim or defending the claim. To sum up, the court should be satisfied that A, the plaintiff has no real prospect of succeeding on the claim or the defendant has no real prospect of successfully defending the claim and B, that there is no other compelling reason why the claim should not be disposed of before recording of oral evidence. Thanks, Leish. Now, since most commercial contracts contain arbitration as the mode of dispute resolution, is there any fast track procedure in arbitration as well? Yes, such fast track procedure is, uh, is available under the Arbitration and Conciliation Act. Section 29B of the Arbitration and Conciliation Act 1996 provides that the parties who are members to an arbitral proceeding or who have decided to refer their dispute to an arbitral tribunal may at any time, even before the arbitral tribunal has been appointed, decide that their dispute be resolved through the process of fast-track arbitration. Now, in a fast-track arbitration, the arbitral tribunal concludes based on written documents and pleading without going through the stage of oral hearings. The arbitrator would be free, of course, to seek submission of any clarification or additional information apart from the written documents. Oral hearings are not forbidden. There can be oral hearings too on the request of the parties and depending upon the nature of the dispute and its necessity. The arbitral tribunal may take expeditious steps to coming to an amicable conclusion in minimum time. The tribunal may skip the technicalities in a situation where oral hearings are being held. The period within which the arbitral tribunal must conclude is six months, which of course under certain circumstances can be extended. A distinguishing factor between summary judgment and fast-track procedure is that since arbitration is by agreement of parties, the fast-track procedure also can be adopted only if both parties to the dispute agree to do so. That's very helpful. Summary judgment mechanisms can be immensely helpful in obtaining an expeditious determination where the law permits. It is an effective tool for litigants, especially useful in a jurisdiction like India, which unfortunately has a serious backlog of cases. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Selesh and Ashima, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you have any questions regarding the topics discussed today or regarding dispute resolution in general, both ELP and Gaul would be very happy to respond to your queries. Thank you.